Last week we finished our study in the book of Philippians together and next Sunday morning we're going to begin a new study through the book of First Peter. So if you want to read ahead the book of First Peter in this upcoming week, next Sunday morning we'll begin a new verse by verse study through the book of First Peter. This morning we're actually going to share communion uh, together as we worship the Lord. So what we're going to do is just kind of do a, a shorter teaching. Uh, Romans chapter 5 is where we'll be if you want to start making your way there to Romans chapter 5. And if you do need a Bible as we're turning in ours, we encourage you to uh, lift your hand up. There's some Bibles in the aisle. The guys can get one to you. And what we'll do is just take a look in Romans chapter 5 here briefly at some verses just to prepare our hearts and then we'll stop our teaching a little bit short this morning and we'll have the musicians come back up and we'll enter into worship and partake of the elements of communion together. Romans chapter 5 and we'll draw your attention if we could to verse 6 excuse me, verse 5, and if you're turned there with me, would you stand together with me out of respect for God's word as I read our passage this morning? Romans 5, beginning in verse 5. says, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Father, we ask for just the aid and the assistance of your Holy Spirit this morning as we open up the Word of God together. We Lord, desire for you to speak to our hearts those things that you would need and want to say to us individually this morning. Lord, you know where we're at. You know the condition of our soul from the moment we walked into this room. And we believe that your word is alive and powerful and has something personal to say to each one of us. So Lord, we ask that whatever would distract or hinder in us mentally, emotionally, spiritually, Lord, that you would take away anything that would distract or minimize from us being able to very clearly hear your voice speaking to our heart personally this morning through your word. So we pray for the ministry of your spirit to give life to the word of God as it's taught and spoken into our lives this morning. Bless your word, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think inside of each and every human being, there is a measure of struggle with our own personal insecurities. And those insecurities in our lives, quite honestly, seem to be different within each one of us. But the bottom line is this, everybody, and I stress everybody, has insecurities. Everybody has insecurities as an individual. And I think part of that is just the fact that we are fallen creatures because of our sinful condition. And whether it's about our appearance or who we are or our status or our awkwardness. And the bottom line is they may be different in each of us, but all of us struggle with this thing of personal insecurities in our own individual lives. And I think 
that often what contributes to a person being able to overcome and to be set free and liberated from their own insecurities is truly when they feel or sense that they are loved. In fact, I think you ought to equate these two things. Love equals security. Love equals security. If you see kids that seem very secure, it's probably because they're very aware and they sense that they're very well loved by their parents. I think the same thing applies in marriage. Again, the Bible tells us in 1 John that love casts out fear. That, that fear and insecurity that people all struggle with, that when there is a sense of love and a person feels love and senses love, that casts out and drives out fear in their lives. And in light of that, there is no greater love to know and to experience than the love of God that he has for each and every one of us. It is the love of God in our lives that can be one of the most powerful influences to help us overcome our own struggles with personal insecurity. And the text in front of us this morning, the Holy Spirit is clearly seeking to focus our attention on the love of God. The love of God is what the topic of our text is. In the book of Revelation, if you're familiar with it, and if you're not, is basically an expanded explanation of God's plan of salvation for sinful human beings like you and I. It is basically a doctrinal explanation revealing how as sinful people who all deserve, all of us, punishment for our failures and our offenses and our mistakes which we all are guilty of in thought word and deed how though we deserve that punishment for our sin God in his great love and at the same time in his perfect justice he didn't compromise his incredible love or his righteous justice as a holy God God being fully loving and fully just and righteous has made a way for us to be forgiven of our sin and have a righteous standing so that we may have entrance into God's holy heaven after we die and also so that we may have access into a personal relationship with the living and the holy God of heaven the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 verse 22 to 24 that it's the righteousness of God which is through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe for there's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God but it says being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Again, teaching there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with God. Absolutely nothing. Nothing can be done to make us right with God. We can't make ourselves right with God in our own efforts. But yet God has a righteousness that he wants to supply to us to make us acceptable to him even though we are innately sinful. And that comes through the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. That's what those verses we just read are a reference to. That God, hear me, is fully satisfied and God is completely uh, you know, uh, willing to accept the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ in such a way whereby his wrath against sin is appeased. And God is satisfied with the blood that was shed by Jesus Christ as he died on the cross for each and every one of us in such a way that when we as sinful people acknowledge our sinfulness and we admit our own need for salvation, 
that we as a sinner before a holy God need to be saved, need to be forgiven, need to be saved so that we don't go to hell and have access into heaven, that when we admit that and believe upon Jesus Christ and his finished work upon the cross for us personally, asking him to save us, asking him to forgive us, that when we do that, by our faith in Jesus, the Bible says that we become justified, which means that God declares a guilty, sinful person, God judicially declares them righteous in his sight by their faith alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ, cancels our debt of sin and gives us the righteousness of Jesus in our account. And therefore, we then have peace with God. We become at peace with God. And we then also have direct access to have a relationship with God as a sinful person because God declares us righteous and we can approach God in the righteousness of his son Jesus and God freely accepts us because we're trusting in the righteousness of Jesus. And Romans chapter 5 is just a description of some of the many benefits a person has regarding their relationship with Jesus and how despite the fact that this world has its challenges and its problems and its difficult experiences that we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God that there is something far better than this life trusting that we are assured to rejoice in that experience when we one day escape this life as children of God and experience the glories of heaven. Look with me in verse 5. This is the, the concept that's being conveyed here, these benefits of God's salvation for the child of God. Verse 5, we read it. It says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So the point in verse 5 very simply is that it is God's love. It is God's love that assures us and proves to us that we will not ultimately be disappointed in our lives. It's the love of God that assures us that we will not ultimately be disappointed. Now, why is that essential? Because I can tell you very certainly my own experience and knowing yours is much like mine, that in this life, many of us have been and will be disappointed in this world. Many of us have been and will be disappointed even by people who supposedly loved us or supposedly said they loved us, or supposedly should have loved us. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a spouse. Maybe it was someone who seemed to be so committed and all of a sudden they pull a Benedict Arnold and just there's utter betrayal. And, 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 and we find ourselves continually disappointed. We disappoint one another and this world is utterly disappointing. This world's full of disappointments. And that is why God wants us and intends for us to be aware of his perfect love. His unfailing love that never fails, that fully satisfies. And his perfect love that will never fail and will never, ever disappoint us. It assures us we'll never be disappointed. That's why here the Holy Spirit says that the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Take notice that one of the many reasons the Holy Spirit was given to live inside of the Christian or the child of God as a result of salvation was to give testimony to the love of God 
in our hearts internally. The Bible teaches that when a person accepts Jesus Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit, who was among their life, convicting them of their sin, convincing them that they need to follow Jesus, to surrender their life to Him, that at the moment a person makes that choice to open the door of their heart and by faith accept Jesus Christ and invite Him into their life, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit then indwells us. The Spirit of the living God comes inside of our life and we become alive spiritually. And that's how we can then have a relationship with God who is spirit as his spirit enters into us. And now we're awakened spiritually to God in a way we weren't before we were saved. And one of the many, there are many, but one of the many ministries of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we see here, is to give testimony of God's love to us, to convince a person initially that God loves them. And then to continually assure us repeatedly, no matter what's going on or where our journey takes us, the Holy Spirit within us, he keeps assuring us, God still loves you. Yeah, I know where you're at, but God loves you and I'll never stop loving you. And yes, that person let you, but God still, God still loves you. And yes, it seems your world's falling apart, but God loves you. And he continually testifies in our hearts of this assurance of the love of God. And the Spirit, through a powerful inner testimony, wants to flood the human heart with the awareness of the love of God for us. My question this morning to you is this. Are you aware of God's love for you? Are you? I'm not talking about are you aware of the fact that God loves the world. You know, Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So whoever believes in him won't perish, have everlasting life. Even most people who don't know anything about the Bible or don't live or follow Jesus Christ can even probably quote that because it's been stated and shared so many times. But listen, I'm not talking about do you know God loves the world. I'm asking you this morning, are you aware of the love of God for you? For you. For who you are and where, that God loves you just as much as he loves everyone else on this planet. That God loves you. That is part of the ministry of the Spirit that we might know and encounter God's love for us personally. To experience an outpouring within our heart of an awareness of the love of God. Romans chapter 8 says that his Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. It's that inner testimony where the Holy Spirit is conveying to our spirit that once we've accepted Jesus, you are a child of God and God loves you with the love of a father. And he wants to be that father in your life. And you know what? That only happens through the spirit expressing it supernaturally. It says here that it is the spirit supernaturally that expresses the love of God to us. And I don't know about you, but isn't it an awesome and an overwhelming experience when the Holy Spirit gives you that awareness of God's love for you personally? Maybe it's in your devotional time as you're just sitting alone with the Lord and the Holy Spirit allows you to just sense the love of God as you're sitting there alone in an amazing and a personal way. Or maybe it's in the midst of a, a worship gathering or a church service or you're singing some praise songs with two or three Christians or you're in the midst of a church service and the Holy Spirit just has a way at times of just flooding our soul and making us so aware of the love of God for us personally in an overwhelming way. Or maybe it's amidst a very hard time in your life or through some circumstance that God coordinates where he just so powerfully shows you that he loves you in such a deep and a personal way as an individual soul. And can I encourage you this morning in light of that, listen, 
Don't quench or resist the Spirit of God in this area. Can I encourage you instead, by faith, no matter what you think, feel, or your experiences have been, by faith to let your guard down and to open up the window and door of your soul and let the Spirit of God flood you with the awareness of God's love for you and embrace it. I tell you this morning, part of living in the fullness of the Spirit is coming into a deeper awareness of God's love for you. Paul prayed for the Ephesians in chapter 3 that they might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul prayed that for the Corinthians. He prayed that they would come to know, he says, the width, the length, the height, the depth. Oh man, I've sunk too low. I just... You just don't know how low I've sunk in my life. There is no way that God could love me. If you know how low I've sunk, listen, it doesn't matter how low you've sunk. God's love goes deeper than that. Oh, man, I've, just, I've gone so far off track. I am just, man, I am so out there. I just, I'm just so far. Listen, you can't go further. God's love is wider than that. God's love is wider than any failure, any mistake, anything that you have done or experienced. God's love is far and wide in its boundaries. It has no limitations. It's like the ocean current that just keeps coming and coming, and you can't stop it. You can't. Have you ever seen anybody, you know, they may dam up a, a river or something. Like that. Has anybody ever dammed up and stopped the, the, the ocean? You can't. It's impossible. You can't, you can't hinder or hold back the love of God. And Paul says, I pray that you would come to comprehend this. He says, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. I find that amusing. He says, I'm praying that you would come to know the love of Christ, that you'd come to know it. He says, but truth be told, it actually passes knowledge. It bisects. Nobody will fully understand completely the love of Christ. It goes beyond human knowledge. That's how massive and huge the love of Christ is for us. And he says that you may be filled with the fullness of God. What's that? Filled with the fullness of God. Well, the Bible says God is love. And I think one of the ways we are filled with the fullness of God in our life is when we come to realize, wow, amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? And I pray this morning as we spend our time together in worship and as we share communion, my prayers that the Holy Spirit would, in your life, bring a fresh outpouring and an awakening of God's love for you personally the love that he has for you in a personal way. Paul says, verse 6, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely, he says, for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So notice, verses 6 to 8 here, we see that Jesus Christ in a perfect exhibit of the love of God, suffered and sacrificed and died, take notice, not for the innocent, but for the very, very guilty. In fact, you notice two times in both verse 6 and 8, you have this repeated refrain, Christ died for us. 
It's repeated there for emphasis in that section of verses. Verse 6 here speaks of Jesus' death in a substitutionary way. He says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So in a substitutionary way, Christ was dying for us. And notice our condition described there in the verse of when Jesus came and when he died for us. It says, first of all, that we were without strength. The indication means we were, the language indicates paralyzed or lame. That's the term used there where it says we were without strength. It pictures that we were spiritually paralyzed. We were lame. We were unable and incapable to do absolutely anything. We could not save ourselves, even if we tried to, because we were paralyzed, just like a paralyzed person. They can try, if they are literally biologically paralyzed, with mental power to overcome their paralysis, but they can't. The capability is not there. The motor function has been interrupted. They're incapable, even though they may want to. And the Bible's saying, look, spiritually, we were paralyzed, dead in trespasses and sins. We could not do anything to help our spiritual condition. We are powerless to resolve the problem of sin's penalty against us. There was no strength and ability to deliver ourselves from the power of sin. We were a prisoner of a spiritual war. We were, we were imprisoned in that state of our sinfulness, he says, without strength to help ourselves spiritually. And he says as well, verse 6, that we were ungodly when Christ died for us. The word ungodly means we were denying and disobeying God. We were wicked, immoral, unholy in our thought, words, and deeds. We were not living in relationship with God. The Bible teaches we were in opposition to God. In fact, Romans 5 says further down, we were actually enemies of God. And it's so important to see this picture because you have to see the black canvas to appreciate all the glorious color that's splashed upon it to allow you to really get a picture of the love of Christ and the depths of God's love. We were without strength. We were ungodly. In other words, our condition as humanity, and hear me, our condition individually, each and every one of us, each and every one of us, we were powerless to save ourselves and we were polluted morally and spiritually living ungodly lives and nonetheless in that miserable condition in that helpless state, Christ died for us. He died for us. And when you look at the language there, it implies in place of or on behalf of. Jesus stepped in as the innocent one, the holy one with all strength, power and authority as God in flesh and in our helplessness and in our unholiness, he helped and he denied himself and said, you know what? I know Tony deserves to experience punishment for his sin. I know he deserves to go to hell and he can't help himself, but I will intervene and on behalf of him, I will suffer the punishment for his sin. I will suffer the wrath of God in his place on his behalf and Jesus embraced that for us in that condition, which tells us something this morning. Very important. It reveals something about God's love for you. When did God start loving you? Was it when you got your act together? Was it when you really cleaned things up and you fixed the mess that you're making of your life or you, you took care of all your immoral issues? And, and did God start loving you when you straightened everything out in your life? 
absolutely not. The answer is God loved you already when you were at your absolute worst. When we were at our absolute worst, God already loved us. It wasn't that we got lovable. <laughs> Listen, do you think God's, oh, they're just so lovable. No. It says we were without strength, ungodly, still sinners. When we were at our absolute worst, God already loved us because God is that loving. And his cross doesn't demonstrate our worth. His cross demonstrates the depths of his love that we're so despicable and yet God loves us still. Which is a good reminder this morning because hear me, despite your condition this morning, and I don't know your condition this morning, only the God of creation who created you knows the condition of your soul and he knows the things that you're doing and if you're a Christian, he knows if you're backsliding and you're watching things on the internet you shouldn't watch or you're doing things that are inappropriate or you're in a lifestyle where you're living in hypocrisy and maybe whatever it may be, listen, despite your condition this morning, whether you've walked away from the Lord, you've never come to the Lord, and you've got things in your life that you know you are guilty of and you're ashamed of, listen, even in that condition, Jesus continues to love you. And you can't make him stop. You can hold him off, but he loves you right like you are, and he will not stop loving you. You can't do anything to make him stop loving you. Despite your condition, he loves you right where you are, right where you at. Nothing will ever change that. That's the depths of the love of Christ. Well, look what Paul says, verse 7. He says, scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. And the point Paul's making here is, is that to die in the place of another would be the highest expression of human love. Jesus said, no greater love have anyone than this than to lay down his life for his friends. And that's the point that Paul's making here. He says, you know, the truth be told, scarcely for even a righteous man would someone dare to die. Maybe someone might die for a good man. The idea here he's trying to point out is to make such a sacrifice is very rare and scarce among human beings when it periodically happens. Maybe, again, a soldier sacrificing and laying their life down on the battlefield. Or let's say, for example, maybe a bodyguard to preserve the life of someone who they deem more important steps in and takes the bullet so they can continue to live. Or maybe to do something to, to sacrificially in heroism and love spare the life of a young innocent child and to die instead in their place. Well, that may happen, but what God is saying here in his word is, look, even those loving sacrificial acts of heroism to die for someone good or innocent or righteous, he says that's very rare when somebody does that. And the point is, even for a righteous person, even for a good person, is it rare when somebody will do such a sacrificial thing and die for someone who seems somewhat worth dying for? But look at verse 8. He says, but God demonstrates his, circle this, own love, distinctly different, towards us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. The Bible here is making a sharp contrast to what is said in verse 7. He says, it's very rare and scarce that somebody would die for somebody who seems somewhat worth dying for. But he says, but God demonstrates his love towards us in this, that Jesus chose to die for a wicked and really bad people who were utterly sinful. 
who were ungodly and who were sinful and offensive in their actions towards God, who were actually enemies in their spiritual condition, and when in that condition Jesus suffered and sacrificed and died for us. And we read here that it is this act of God sending his son and Jesus dying on the cross for us in that condition, we read here in that God demonstrated his love. God demonstrates his own love in the fact that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That word demonstrate means to show, to prove, to establish, or to exhibit. In fact, when you look at it in its original context, in the original language in the Greek, it speaks to show in the best possible light, to display in the best way possible. If I can illustrate uh, a number of years ago, 20 plus years ago, I pulled together all the resources I could possibly afford because I wanted to uh, marry Trisha May Lackey and as a demonstration of my love to her, I wanted to get her the biggest piece of shiny dust I could to, to show her the depths of my love. And when you go to the jewelry store to look at the diamonds, of course, you notice that diamonds are always put. They're putting those nice little black velvet backgrounds, right? And all the right lighting is on them. And what's the purpose of that? They don't put them against like a bland piece of you know wood or oak in a really dim lighting. They put them with that black velvet and the perfect shiny light. Why? To make all the facets of that beautiful diamond go, wow, look at that. It's displayed in the best way possible. The Bible is saying, look, the best way possible God could demonstrate his love was to send his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, for guilty, sinful, wicked people who would spit in the face of God and offend God and not even care and live selfishly and stubbornly and yet he would let his son bleed and sacrifice on that cross and that Jesus would come and do such a thing, the Bible says, is the greatest demonstration. There's no greater demonstration of God's love than when you look to the cross of Calvary. 1 John 3.16 says this, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. 1 John 4.9 and 10 says, In this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Listen. I encourage you, study the New Testament and you will take note that whenever the Bible seeks for us to understand the love of God, it always, always points to the same singular thing and this is it. God demonstrates his love in the sacrificial death of his son Jesus Christ. That was the best possible exhibit and the best way God could establish most clearly and prove to us his love for us. Again, I'm so thankful for that because when we experience life, the experiences of life in this sinful, fallen, crazy, messed up, corrupt world, it's hard sometimes to discern that God loves me when my world's falling apart. It's hard to discern God loves me when, when something horrible is going on in my life or things are difficult or I'm in some trial. It's hard to understand how could God love me when I've been abused or mistreated or hurt or wounded or I'm suffering or struggling. It's hard to grasp the love of God in those things. But when you look 
to the cross of Jesus Christ and Jesus, the Son of God, sacrificially dying and suffering on your behalf for your sin and your selfishness so that you don't have to go to hell but can go to heaven and be forgiven, how can you question the love of God? God says, you know, oh, prove your love to me, prove your love to me. God says, I already proved my love to you. Look at my son bleeding on the cross for you. That is my proof, the clearest proof that I love you despite who you are, where you're at, and what you're going through. And this morning, as we share the elements of communion together, I pray as we remember Jesus and his death and his suffering, that the Spirit of God would pour into our hearts a greater awareness of God's love for us.